Well, it is great to see all of you. Uh, welcome if you are a visitor today. Uh, my name's Josh. We are glad that you're here. Uh, we are going to begin a new series. It's going to take us uh, through Christmas. Uh, and the series is called The Invitation. And the reason that we are focusing in on this series at this time of year is as we're getting ready to launch Door of Hope Northeast, it's really important for us to continually uh, come back to those foundations to ask why it is that we do what we do. What is the core convictions of us as a church community? What do we believe God has uniquely called us to? And I began to kind of pray through this and, and really praying for just a, a, just a fresh vision for Door of Hope uh, as we enter into the new year. And the thing that God keeps bringing back to my heart, to my attention, is this idea that Jesus is continually inviting us uh, to return again and again uh, to the heart of worship. That what we call practices or our disciplines are essentially how it is that we enter into worship how it is that we engage in the very thing that we were created for, that the eternal occupation of every believer is to worship God and to do it in spirit and in truth. I think it's become increasingly difficult for the church to resist the infiltration of cultural ideology because we are often too busy expending our energies on trying to make our faith relevant to the culture rather than discovering the transformative relevance of the gospel of Jesus. What I want us is to be a people that, that come to that, that place that doesn't actually align with, with human reasoning, but actually can bring transformation to reason, and that is the very presence of the living Christ through his redemptive work that isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's a redemptive work that continues to impact and transform lives today when people encounter Jesus by the power of his spirit. If you're like me, you are hungry for truth, and you are like me probably wearied by what we often find in ourselves that I would refer to as spiritual anemia where there's just a lack of the sense of the Holy Spirit's fullness in our lives because the, the multitude of voices that are vying for our attention and our affection just begin to wear us down. That we look around at the world uh, and, and we see its landscape and the insanity of the things that are going on and it can become very difficult uh, to hear that still soft voice that says, come to me all you who are weary. There's an invitation that Jesus is continually presenting and the invitation is to come and to know him. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ, your son, whom you have sent. And as we move into this Christmas season, a time that is often marked far more by hectic energy, which leads to leanness of soul, I think it's important that we keep our focus as a, as a community of faith upon what it is that we have been called to, what it is that we have been redeemed from, and what it is that we are called in, and invited to participate in. And so throughout this month, I wanna just say a couple things. Today we began it. Every single morning at 6 a.m., most of you didn't come, but many of you did. Uh, today it began. We are praying every single morning here at 6 a.m., 6 to 7 a.m., 
through, through the month, right up to Christmas Eve. And I want to invite you guys to come because prayer really does change things. It, it can actually be the great medicine for leanness of soul. Uh, and, and it's an awesome way to commune. It's a great way to develop maybe a discipline that isn't in place in your life, which is to seek God's face before you seek any other face. And many of you have participated in these kinds of crazy early morning things that we've done through the years, and it's awesome. It's, it, it can be a real transformational time for you. And I just wanna invite you to come and be a part of it so that you can prove that you're saved. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> God will be impressed with, you know, his love is definitely contingent upon your, no, it's not. Because of his grace, he invites us to freely come. And, and I think that, I like what Karl Barth said about prayer. Whenever I pray, I begin by gathering others to pray with. And there's a beauty and a power in praying together. And it's, it's low pressure, guys. Just Come and join us, 6 a.m. I would love to see this just become a movement where it just, we just sense God's spirit, where Door of Hope, this building as we pray daily becomes kind of what, what it can be referred to as a thin space where heaven and earth seem to interact in a very unique way. Uh, the second thing is that as we move toward Christmas Eve, we want, we want to be about proclaiming the saving work of Jesus Christ to a city that is desperate for grace. And I want you guys to begin to understand that part of the reason we enter into leanness of soul is because we aren't participating with Jesus in what he's doing. He says, follow me, but we often stay static and then we lose touch with who Jesus is and what he's all about. And when, when, if you want your faith to come alive, participate in sharing your faith with another. Now, here's what I mean by that. I'm not saying go out and try to, you know, share the gospel. If you have that in you, do it. But I think you can just begin by the most simple thing, which is invite someone to come to church with you on Christmas Eve. And I want you right now to be thinking, if you're taking notes, write down right now a name of someone that you want to see come and hear about Jesus. And I promise that on Christmas Eve, It'll be carols, but it's gonna be a, the presentation of the gospel. We're gonna, we're gonna look at John 3.16 because it is the ultimate invitation into love. And I want you to begin thinking about that now, that God would begin to produce in you a boldness just to invite someone to come and see what it is that you participate in at this church. Christian life is not meant to be a secret life. People say, my faith is personal. If you mean by that it's relational, wonderful, but if you mean by that it's private, you have a false understanding of the gospel. Jesus is inviting us to participate in his great rescue mission to the ends of the world. He says, go therefore and make disciples. And so I would just encourage you, who do you want to see come to faith? Maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a sister, maybe it's a mom, maybe it's a dad, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's your neighbor, but I want us to be a culture that recognizes that church growth should not be dependent upon transfer growth from people that are disenchanted with the last church they were at. We want our growth to be based upon our active participation in inviting people to come and meet Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. So that's what's happening over this month, and that's what we are being invited by Jesus into as a worshiping community. But what we need to begin with is this, is that we are defined 
by a people who worship God in spirit and in truth. And I want to begin with this passage in John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This is sort of the central passage in the Scriptures that defines for us our eternal occupation. That God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now let me just say, when Jesus defines worship, what true worship is, He is acknowledging by that very statement that there is a thing called false worship. And what He's saying by that is that worship is universal. That all people worship all the time. Do we understand that? So how would you even define what worship is? Worship, I would think if we were to borrow from Augustine in his confessions, I think that he nails it when he says that essentially worship is our displaced affections. It's whatever we put, whatever we put our complete attention upon, whatever it is that we give our heart to. We are, as James K. Smith says in his book, we are what we love. And so if you wanna know what you worship, all you need to, to do to discover that is to, is to think, what is it that captivates your heart and your mind more than anything else? And sadly, what that often reveals for us, even as believers, is that Jesus often takes second, third, fourth, fifth place when it comes to the central desire of one's heart. This is why Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory that every time we pull out one idol, that is something that we're putting supreme value upon, God just reveals another idol that's, that's an issue. And this is why it is impossible for us to reach God in our effort and why the gospel is such good news because the gospel is about a God who pursues or seeks us, men, women, boys and girls, a God who comes down to earth and meets us in our idolatrous, broken realities. And he comes to set us free so that we can worship in spirit and in truth. There is a cry within the human heart. And that cry is the outcome of the fact that we were made in the image of God. That's what we're told in Genesis. But that image through the fall, through what we call sin, which is what? It is a rebellion, a rejection of God's rule in our life. That fall meant that the image of God was not destroyed, but every aspect of it was marred. And what that meant is that the human heart, which is meant and created for worship, that is communion with God, God is the central focus, God's glory being the chief end of our lives. He is glorified when His children enjoy Him. He is glorified, actually, when we recognize His grace toward us, that one-way love that comes to us, not because we are worthy of it, but because it is His nature to give it. And when we stopped doing what we were created to do, what we have found is that all we do every time we place worship upon the wrong thing, 
whether it's your children, your spouse, your job, your dreams, those things inevitably break our hearts. Those things aren't intended to be worshiped. This is why probably the most damaging worship is the worship of oneself. Nothing is more disappointing, right? I get weary even saying it. The cry of the human heart means that the heart was actually created to be in communion with God, that we as people were meant to be in communion with God. This is what it means in Ecclesiastes 3 when it says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man, a desire to be knit together with him, but sin has caused us, blinded us to what that cry is all about. So the longing is there, but the comprehension is not there with it. There is a blindness, we are told, that requires a divine intervention. You see, worship itself does not invoke the presence of God. Rather, true worship is a response to his presence. We don't worship God so that he is pleased with us and makes himself known. We worship God because God has moved into our brokenness and made himself known through Jesus and the cross. I would say that true worship is the soul's ability to know Christ in increasing degrees of intimacy. Now, when we look at this powerful reality of worship, oh, do you love like updates when all of a sudden your thing doesn't work anymore because it does something new and I don't know how to switch slides now? There we go. Okay, got it. <laughs> I'm like, really? Why a new finger swipe, Apple? I, you know what? It's my fault. I should preach from a Bible. Instead, I decided to get savvy, and I am controlled by my culture like everyone else. It's like me and Jesus, and then Twitter caption. Where did that come from? Why is that on the screen, right? As you're, it's, it's really, my wife's like, I don't know if you should use an iPad to, to do your devotions. I don't think it's healthy for your soul. It's probably true. Uh, so what I want us to look at are really, really four realities. And, and if you've been at Door of Hope for years, you've probably heard me say this before. Um, I, I feel like I'm going to go at it a little bit different angle. But this is, I believe, the, the most succinct definition um, that, that I can speak to when it comes to worship. How is it that we worship? And I would just say this, that worship begins in submission. It is initiated by the Spirit. It is defined by truth and it is expressed in love. We worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Jesus says, the Father is looking for true worshipers. The Father is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we worship the Father by the Holy Spirit through the one who is the truth, which is Jesus Christ himself. And the Spirit himself is also the Spirit of truth. So we worship God by God through God is essentially what Jesus is saying. I love how Trinitarian it is. But let's begin with this idea that worship begins in submission because I think that this is an important aspect for us to get our heads around. Do you guys know where the first mention of the word worship is in the Scriptures? It's actually found in the passage behind me. It's Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. And it's when God has approached Abraham and he is challenging. I believe that he is actually going right to the source of a natural place where 
the human heart will place its central affections, which is upon our children. And he's testing Abraham's full covenantal loyalty to himself. And he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, the reason that this is such an intense request is because God has given Abraham a very distinct promise, a promise that he actually, he actually waited until Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children naturally to show that this is going to be a work that comes from him and him alone. And, and as they are now at the end of their lives and they have been given the child that they waited for forever, now God is saying, now I want you, whom I said, through your seed I would bless all nations, I want you to offer that son as a sacrifice. He says, Abraham takes, takes his son and he takes him into the wilderness and he says to the servants that are with him, he says, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What does Abraham mean when he says we are going to worship? I think one of the great problems with language is how it unfortunately can shift in its meaning with time. Because for us, we have reduced worship to a set of songs sung before and after a message. When everything we do as followers of Christ in surrender to him is an act of worship. That's why I said we don't need to talk about the disciplines of the devotional life. We need to talk about how it is that we actually enter into worship as a community of faith, which is what we're exploring over these next few weeks. But here he says, we are going over to worship. What he means is sacrifice. What he means is surrender. What he means is that worship begins with submission. You see, if the essence of sin is independence from God's rule, then the essence of salvation, the essence of worship, is a return to God's control over our lives, which is actually the best place and the only place by which one can truly find freedom. Freedom from a true biblical sense. The world talks about freedom as if freedom is defined by our ability to do whatever we want, but we aren't free to do whatever we want. Nobody is truly free in that way. The universe is controlled by laws that one cannot actually break without breaking yourself. The death rate is still one per person. You think you're free to live forever? Probably not. The fact is, is that we have to understand that it is submission to God that actually sets us free to really live. And Abraham is willing to surrender the thing that is dearest to him. This is why I think it's important for us to understand that the, that the Christian life, yes, the gospel of grace is free, but it's not cheap. It comes to us freely, but it costs God his son. And for us to actually enter into the life that Jesus wants for us, it requires this painful work 
of the Holy Spirit by which we have to have that soul surgery, the thing that creates the leanness of soul is often our unwillingness to surrender the things that we think matter when in actuality they might matter, but they are mattering in a way that is unhealthy for us. And God is not in the business of eradicating desires. He is in the business of transforming desires. But he can't transform anything if we refuse to surrender it. You know, that's what Lewis meant in The Weight of Glory when he says we're like children making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what it's like to have a vacation at the sea. We're just clinging to our garbage, thinking that this is the best thing that we can get when God says, I have eternal life for you, but you've got to trust me. You've got to let go. You've got to lay it down at my feet. And sometimes it's going to be really painful on the front end, but in the long run, it's going to actually produce fruit. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, the presentation of the body as a living sacrifice is the surrender, the submission of oneself to God's rule. And this is why prayer in the morning, I like this. This is something we're to do daily. You see, when we say yes to that initial invitation of Jesus and we say, Jesus, come into my life. I want you to, to save me, to forgive me of my sins, to give me your Holy Spirit, and one becomes born again. But what we need to understand is that when you are born again, you are, you are, you are brought into a new reality, a transformation where all things become new. But that newness, to continue to experience the newness of transformation, requires a daily surrender. That he sets us free, and that freedom actually comes with now the possibility of misusing the freedom. The freedom to go back to the refuse rather than grabbing hold of the treasure. The freedom to experience the peace of Jesus rather than the exaltation of self, and we all see it as born-again believers, we find ourselves often returning to the wrong master, which is ourselves. We often find ourselves giving our hearts affection and our allegiance to things other than Jesus, only to find our hearts broken again. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus loves us, has given himself to us, and that grace continues to be free. But if it's free, we've got to grab a hold of it. It's offered and presented. Nothing changes our standing with Christ, but our experience of that standing is dependent upon our daily surrender. And I think that that's super important for us to understand. I appeal, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. When I look at Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice his son, and you remember what happens, son says to him, Father, where is the sacrifice? And he says, the Lord will provide. And it's as Abraham lifts the dagger to plunge it into his son's heart. The fact is, is when he says here, we will come back to you again, is that Abraham knows that if he indeed has to kill his son, that, he, that God has promised him that through his seed, all nations will be blessed. That either he will stop him from doing it or he will raise him from the dead. But obedience to God, even when it seems absurd, is better than the absurdity of trying to rule your own life. 
So worship begins in submission. And I would argue that submission and faith are often interconnected. That our faith in Christ is a dependence upon him that gives him the right to be himself in and through our lives. Secondly, worship, if it begins in submission, it's initiated by the Spirit. And I would just say this too, just, just to, to note, because I think this is really, really uh, crucial in even my own understanding of submission. When I first came to faith in Jesus, uh, it was really an, an intellectual ascent. I, I had started reading the Bible. I became convinced that he really was the Son of God, but I, I, I didn't know, I didn't understand what it meant to live a spirit-filled life. And so for me, my initial faith in Jesus was, man, I'm lost, I need someone to save me, but I'm really just wanting you to save me so that you can now fulfill my dreams. And which made me actually a really, really horrible Christian for that first year. Uh, and my wife saw through it because she wasn't a believer. And the hypocrisy was so great because she saw all my ambition, all of that ego, all of that pride, the idea that now that I have Jesus on my side, uh, I'm for sure going to get all of my dreams fulfilled. It was like I really held to long before the book was ever written and probably could have written it that year to prove that it's false, your best life now. Uh, I, I found that, that this was this kind of false idea that Jesus was, I wanted Jesus as Savior. I did not, I wasn't interested in him as Lord. And it wasn't until a year in to my walk with the Lord that I actually heard a series of messages on Romans 1 through 5 on the good death. What does it mean to die with Christ and to actually rise into his resurrection life? That I had an absolute revolution happen in my life where I recognized that the thing that God was asking me to do in that moment was to actually lay everything down. I remember I went home, I quit my band, I canceled our, our tour in our, in our showcase in LA. I was, so, I was supposed to play with Keanu Reeves at the Viper Room. <laughs> it's so good. His band was not so good, but who doesn't want to play with Keanu Reeves? <laughs> Before the Matrix, all of that. went Back when he was, you know, that was at the end of the Bill and Ted's era. <laughs> uh, but I, I remember I canceled the show, I quit the band, and, and I said, Darcy, I am so sorry for being so selfish. And I'm like, I want to be a good husband. I want, I, I want to have a family. I want you to see this Jesus that has truly saved me. I went on a mission trip instead to Russia, wrote my first worship song, saw someone come to the Lord and was like, this is, this is where it's at. But it was costly, it was hard to make that choice. But had I not made that choice, I wouldn't have a wife, my kids wouldn't exist, and we wouldn't be sitting here right now. This is the, the reality of surrender, which brings us to the initiation by the Spirit. Here's the thing that I want us to really understand. In John 16, verses 13 through 14, it says, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus says that the Father is Spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is why we need to understand that the church represents not simply the influence of Christ, but his Holy Spirit. That Christian experience through that spirit comes from contact or communion with the living Lord and faith is only explainable as a gift from him. 
In other words, when we preach the gospel, we invite people to come and meet Jesus. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That nobody comes to faith through their own understanding. I just want you guys to be really clear that I do not believe that reason will lead anyone to a saving knowledge of Jesus because sin has actually blinded us to God's presence. And unless the spirit of truth reveals the truth of Jesus, we are lost. And this is why the gospel is such good news because it's about God's descent into our brokenness, into our blindness where he gives sight. When we responded, I love, Darcy was sharing her story, her conversion story. She just, uh, she just wrote it out for a book that Wendy Palau is gonna be um, putting out of women's stories of conversion. And she asked my wife to contribute to it. Darcy said the first time she responded to the gospel, she had seen some changes in me, but there was still like an animosity toward the gospel. She had lost her only brother to AIDS. She didn't want anything to do with Jesus or God or Christians, but she goes and her parents had experienced this kind of radical awakening to Jesus after Jason's death. And they found this really great church, uh, this kind of evangelical Lutheran charismatic church down in Northern California. And Darcy's visiting the church and the guy presents the gospel and says, if anyone wants to receive Jesus, will they stand up? And she goes, I don't know, if you know my wife, this is so out of character. She goes, all of a sudden I was just standing there. And, and, and she goes, I, it was like someone like shocked me and I had to stand up. And she didn't know why she was standing and she prays to receive Jesus. And, and it was in kind of like me where then it became this, this process over the year after Henry was born, she had this kind of supernatural intervention of the spirit that just showed her that the very person she had put her faith in was with her present with her. But I think that there is this, this initiation by the Spirit. We don't understand so that we believe. Augustine said it best, we believe that we might understand. It is faith in search of understanding. It is faith in search of obedience. It's not obedience so that we can be saved. It is we're saved and therefore we obey by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's not I understand so that I can believe, it's I believe so that I might be able to understand. And this is truly, faith itself is the work of the Spirit and the Spirit itself proceeds from the cross and is the Spirit of our redemption. How then shall we live? Finds its answer in living out the life of the cross freely in the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is why it says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Our surrender to Jesus doesn't just mean that we're left to our own devices. Our surrender actually places us in a place where we can receive Christ into our very lives. That's why Jesus said, if anyone loves me and keeps my commandment, and what is his commandment? That we love one another. He says, I will come into him or her and make my home within them. It's not just a childish prayer that we say when we tell people to invite Jesus into their hearts. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens, I will come in and dine with them and they with me. And so it is that the Spirit's initiation in our lives, he, when the Spirit of truth has come, will guide you into all truth. 
This is why Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said. This is why the scripture without the Spirit is a dead book in our hands. And the Spirit without the scripture makes it impossible for us to actually know if it's truly the Spirit of God. This is why we must be a community that is driven by spirit and truth, or another way of saying that is a, is a community that, is, that has a central understanding that it is a balance of word and spirit. We understand in and through language, but only when this language is illuminated by the spirit do we begin to know the truth. It's all determining reality as the center and the source of all meaning. The Spirit of God illuminating the Scripture. How many people here have had that same experience I did where you, where you tried reading the Bible before you were born again and it just seemed like you were reading a foreign language? It didn't resonate. It brought no, it didn't do anything in the life, but then there's something that happens. Now, it's easy actually even as believers for us to become, begin to drift from that reality and we forget what it was like when the Word was alive to us. We can become, just like a, any relationship, we can, become, we can become cold to that. We lose that initial romantic flair and, the, and, and we can become distant from the one who's called us into relationship with himself. But Jesus, I love in Revelation, says, remember your first love. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me. Repeat those works. Come and sit at my feet. Spend time with me. Let my spirit illuminate into your life, what has gone wrong, where you have drifted. Jesus is constantly that gentle voice that calls us back again and again into intimacy with himself. This is why it doesn't just sit with the spirit, that's just pure mysticism, but it is, it begins with submission, worship does. It's initiated by the Holy Spirit. Every movement we take toward God, God is always previous. No one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws them. The Spirit is sent into the world to reveal to the world the truth of who Jesus is. And he does that through the community of faith, through the church, through the proclamation of the gospel. And here we have this reality, and it becomes defined by truth. In an age of intellectual anarchy where true and false have been replaced with like and dislike, we can hardly be shocked or surprised by the tremendous confusion and discontent we see all around us. Jesus himself prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. But see, we have lost our understanding of what truth is. And this is why it says in Romans chapter one, verse 25, and this shows us why we need God's own entrance into our brokenness, that we need a God who can save us because we cannot save ourselves. When it says in Romans that we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Is that not the world that we live in? Is that not what we often find our own selves doing? And this is why it becomes even easy within the church today when we confuse truth with with information when in actuality what the Bible is declaring as truth is a person. It's relational in its content. It's supernatural. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Notice Paul is saying there are spiritual forces at play. We just considered this in our spiritual warfare series. And at the same time, there is empty human philosophy. And we are so intrigued by knowledge. Many philosophers believe that the the essence of the fall was driven by the pursuit of secret knowledge. I'm a man who constantly has to be aware of that. I love learning. I love the uh, the endless pursuit of knowledge. But knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Once again, the goal of the Christian life is not the eradication of the intellect, but it's the transformation of every arena of life through the surrender to the Spirit. And the Spirit comes to lead us into the truth. The Word is a personal address directed to the one who believes. All Scripture, we're told in 2 Timothy, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The primary focus of Scripture is God's search for man, not man's search for God. Our knowledge of God is based on God's gracious initiative toward us through Jesus. It's not discovered through our own striving. And this is why we aren't actually talking about the Scriptures if we are not pointing to Jesus through all of it. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I think that this is one of those things that we're not inspired by facts. We're inspired by the truth that's in Jesus. That Jesus is the truth. And this is why he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. One of the greatest actions, I love P.T. Forsyth says, one of the greatest actions of the spirit in modern thought is to preserve Christ's influence from being detached from his act and turned into a moral process. One of the greatest works of the spirit in modern thought, in the church, is to protect our ideas about Jesus from becoming moral law. This is why Luther said the most important thing for us as believers is to be able to distinguish between law and gospel. That the gospel tells us that Jesus is the end of the law. And that if we think we're gonna be saved by doing more things, that does not answer the question of come to me all you are weary so I can give you more things to do that are impossible. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I want you to take my yoke upon you because my burden is light. The gentleness of Jesus. He is inviting us to understand that the centrality of our, of our lives is based upon a work that is already finished. The one who says yes to Jesus has everything. We just often are blinded to that fact. And so it is that his spirit brings to the act of remembrance to take the work of Christ and shows it to the church. He leads the church into all truth, but it is the truth as it is in the whole Jesus. And this is why it must be centered on the gospel. And this is why we will consider next week when we look at the invitation into witness that if, if what we talk about as the church, even if it's based in scripture, if it is not bringing us back again and again to God's gracious movement toward us in Jesus, if it isn't, if it isn't find its center, and its focus upon the cross, then we are doing something other than what the church has been called to do. This is why it says in 1 Timothy 2.4, 
God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of what? The truth. Salvation is wrapped up in the truth, but the truth is not knowledge. It's Jesus. Our knowledge of the truth is a knowledge of a person, the living Christ. And this is why for us, the worship begins in submission. It's initiated by the Spirit. It's defined by truth. And in closing, it is expressed in love. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples. They will know you are a worshiping community by your ability to truly love one another. And that is not the love of eros, which is a self-serving love. It's a love that is driven by what will bring fulfillment to me, but it is agape love. Agape is a creative love. It's God's self-giving love that creates in the beloved that which the one who loves gives. And so Jesus doesn't just come to give us love, give love to the unlovable. He actually desires to creatively turn the unlovable into that which is lovable. When we say the best and most honest thing we can say when we gather together is, hi, my name is Josh, I'm a sinner. That is not saying that we aren't also saints. It's just saying that the only one who can ever say that they are a saint is the one who first recognizes that they're a sinner. For Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom Paul said he was chief. And at the same time, it is that recognition that that's who Jesus comes to save that we find that we are beloved. And we need to understand our place as the beloved because if we do not believe that we are loved on our worst day, we will not give love to others on their worst day or even on their best day because it's never good enough, is it? The best love that I have to give, unfortunately, is mixture. And this is why I need the creative, redemptive work of the Holy Spirit in my life, producing the love of Christ through me in spite of me. And it's only as I give myself away and I begin to move toward that agape love, this understanding of what Paul calls us to in Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Love is the only debt that will never be paid in full. Faith and hope, we're told, when we meet Jesus will dissipate. They will no longer be necessary. Only love remains. Only love continues. And it is that agape love, a love that loves in spite of the unlovability of the beloved. I was talking with Darcy about this, of just how desperately, how, how many marriages I see fall apart because Satan is so amazing at revealing the truth about the person's brokenness while withholding the call for us to act in grace. And how we have to remind ourselves, how do I act toward my wife, toward my children, toward the church? How do I act toward those that have hurt me, who have attacked me, how do I act toward those that I have hurt? The only answer that the church should give is grace. Grace. It doesn't mean a weakness or a softness or an overlooking of, of sin because true grace, the loving graciousness of Jesus, recognizes that we're broken and that we're lost without him, but it also is a rescuing love that wants to pull us out of the pit. And this is how we should act toward one another. We can't correct one another if, if people don't actually believe that we really love them. 
because all our correction will seem like is judgment. And this is why we need to understand that the mark of a church that really worships is always marked. The only tangible evidence that we are any different than the rest of the world, the only tangible evidence that Jesus Christ is alive in this community is not our orthodoxy. It is our ability to love. But it is a love that is anchored in word and in spirit as we submit to the king. And this is why Augustine said this, there is a delight which is not given to the wicked, but to those who worship you for no reward, save the joy that you, that you yourself are to them. That is the authentic happy life. To set one's joy on you, grounded in you, and caused by you. That is the real thing, and there is no other. This is the source of our agape love. A love that comes to us from outside of us and comes into us to transform us that through us can draw others into the love of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is what it means to worship. Worship begins in submission. It's initiated by the Spirit. It's defined by truth. And it's expressed in love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.